0: Hi, writers. Welcome to our new episode on the craft of writing fiction. This is Jim Thayer. Sometimes we talk about big topics and sometimes smaller topics. Here's a small one, but it's a good one to know. When naming characters in our story, consider giving them first and last names that the reader knows instantly how to pronounce. Uh, Smith, Jones, Joe, Gregory... Diane, Haynes, Phillips, there's a million of them, of course. First and last names that typically can be can be pronounced only one way. Here's the technique. Consider avoiding names where the pronunciation isn't clear. The reason is that we want readers to quickly connect with our characters. And that's, that's why, for example, it's best if we describe a character right away, right after the reader first meets him or her. A description plants the character in the reader's mind. The same is true with a character's name. If a reader doesn't know for certain how to pronounce the character's name, there is a disconnect between the reader and the character, the same as if the character isn't physically described. What do I mean about characters' names where the reader doesn't know how to pronounce them? How about the name Y-V-E-S? It's often pronounced Eves in English, but the correct French pronunciation is Eve for Y V E S. What does the reader do here? Uh, keep both pronunciations in mind? I don't think the reader will do that. And here's a beautiful name uh, Gulum. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. It's spelled G-U-I-L-L-A-U-M-E. And it can be pronounced as Guillaume or Guillaume. Uh, Maybe it can be pronounced other ways. I don't know. It's a beautiful looking name. Here's a short one. Anna, A-N-A. It can be pronounced Anna or Anya. The reader doesn't know. Here's another one, uh, B-E-A-U-C-H-A-M-P. I think the French would pronounce it Beecham, but who knows? It could be Beauchamp, Beauchamp, I don't know. How about how about the lovely name, uh, this name, C-H-O-Q-U-E-T-T-E? I think it's pronounced Chaquette. What a lovely name, but... I don't know better. I might pronounce it in my head Chokwet or Choket. How about the Swedish name Strom, S-T-R-O-M, with an umlaut, the two little dots over the O. I I think it's pronounced Strom. Maybe it's Strom. Maybe the umlaut makes it "Strum." Here's a famous one, Seamus. It's pronounced Seamus, but it's spelled S-E-A-M-U-S. Uh, the Irish poet Seamus Haney, who won the Nobel Prize in Literature, his name is Seamus Haney. Uh, the Irish have lots of lovely first names, uh, lovely to look at on the page and lovely to hear pronounced, that I don't have a clue how to pronounce. Uh, these names are are beautiful to look at and to hear, but it's not clear to many readers how to pronounce them. And there are many other names like this, both first and last names. So there can be a disconnect between the reader and the character. Every time the reader comes across the character Guillaume, that's G-U-I-L-L-A-U-M-E, and I still don't know how to pronounce it, the reader pauses to think about the pronunciation. And it may bring the reader out of the story, which we writers want to avoid. This is a small thing, but lots of small techniques can lead to smooth and powerful writing. And I may be short-sighted on the topic of first names. I have four siblings. I'm the oldest. Listen to this. Jim, John, Joe, and Jay. And the youngest is my sister, who is lucky not to be named Jingle. Her name is Connie, after our mother and grandmother, but then they couldn't help themselves. Her middle name is Jill, Connie Jill. So I may not be sufficiently inspired and maybe too conventional regarding first names, but still, uh, consider my suggestion that we should choose names for our characters that readers instantly know how to pronounce. Uh, Below the description of this episode, you'll find a support the show link which will take you to a Patreon page. If you'd like to support these episodes, please consider subscribing. Uh, Many thanks from me. I'd like to talk about young adult fiction, YA fiction. Uh, The book publishing industry generally breaks down fiction into three categories. Children, uh, maybe it's four categories. Children, middle grade fiction, which is ages 8 to 12, young adult, which is thought to be 12 to 18 years old, and adult. Uh, Some would throw in new adult fiction for ages between young and adult, young adult and adult, meaning 18 to 25 years old. There's an overlap in these age categories, and the ages I've mentioned are guidelines uh, not set in asphalt, but one of the first, and maybe the the first question an agent or publisher asks when receiving a query or a manuscript is, what age group is this story intended for? I'd like to talk a moment about young adult fiction. As I mentioned uh, in fiction, this age group is considered uh, to be uh, 12 to 18 years old. What should we writers consider when writing fiction for young adults? Here's the main thing. All, or maybe almost all, techniques we talk about in these episodes and that you'll find in books about writing and in writing classes that you might take, all of these techniques apply to young adult fiction. A story is a story, and those things that make for a good story apply to adult and to young adult fiction. There are some differences, perhaps, and let me offer some thoughts on that. Uh, A first thought. Uh, uh, Young adult fiction usually features a teenaged protagonist. Young adults want to read about young adults. A second thought. Uh, Most young adult fiction consists of -of coming-of-age stories. As you know, a coming-of-age story focuses on the transition between childhood and adulthood, or thereabouts. Much of the world's great literature consists of -of coming-of-age stories, including Charles Dickens' best novels, Oliver Twist, David Copperfield, Great Expectations, and Nicholas Nickleby. A third thought, and we're talking about some differences between adult fiction and young adult fiction. Young adult fiction often deals with the themes of identity and relationships uh, finding out who they are finding out who they can trust uh, the the hero often struggles with things in the story that adults in fiction and in real life uh, m- may have worked through already a fourth thought uh, you'll find suggestions that young adult fiction is written in a more accessible style than adult fiction. In other words, it's easier to understand. Uh, Sure, a 12-year-old reader might not grasp some themes and words that a 30-year-old reader might, but this notion, making it easy for younger readers, is a trap for us writers. Teenage readers are smart, especially if they're reading books, and they are more plugged into the world than we might believe, and they will stop reading and then they'll text and tell their friends about a story where they think the author is talking down to them. Uh, My suggestion is that when we are writing for young adults, write in the language we would for adults. Young adults will get it. Uh, We should tell the story with our usual words, probably with our usual voice, and young adult readers might appreciate it. In the least. They won't toss the novel aside as being insulting to their intelligence, saying it's for babies. I think To Kill a Mockingbird was intended for young readers. The protagonist is Scout Finch, who's six years old. But the reader never gets the sense that the author Harper Lee is talking down to anybody. That should probably be our goal as writers of young adult fiction. A fifth thought we should dial back sex and violence, and and perhaps some other things that adults might, uh, might like to read or at least tolerate in a story. Uh, just ask ourselves, is the scene we are thinking about writing appropriate for a teen, a young teen? We don't let 14-year-olds drive automobiles for certain reasons, and for some of those some Same reasons we shouldn't expose young people to too graphic scenes, scenes that are too graphic. Uh, this can be more difficult than we might think. Uh, we might want uh, our plot to be edgy, but where do you draw the line? Uh, the Perks of Being a Wallflower is considered a YA novel, I think, and I like the book, but there are scenes in there I wouldn't want a young teenager to read. I don't have a formula, but it's worth thinking about. Would you want your 12- or 13-year-old to read it? If not, leave it out of the story. That's, that may be a good formula. A sixth thought. A plotting technique in most fiction meant for young adults is the protagonist's short horizon. The hero is mostly interested in family friends, school, hobbies, a romance, usually with someone in class who won't initially have anything to do with him or her. The protagonist is mostly interested in what happens today and tomorrow, maybe next week, but probably not interested in next month or next year. A young adult novel might deal with important themes, uh, such as in To Kill a Mockingbird, but the story is told with Scouts limited horizon. Here's a seventh thought about YA. That you are writing a young adult novel does not mean you are excluding adult readers. YA novels include The Hunger Games, The Harry Potter novels, Huckleberry Finn, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, The Catcher in the Rye, The Princess Diaries. uh, Arguably, These are all YA novels, but they have proven to be vastly entertaining for adults, too. If you're writing a YA novel, you likely aren't excluding adults from your audience. Those are some thoughts on young adult novels. It's a big niche in publishing, and some highly skilled people write YA novels. I'd like to discuss a really important uh, topic, uh, one that I've touched on in a couple of prior episodes, but it's so important I want to return to it, and that's the use of details. I'll try to dig deeper in it. The screenwriter and playwright Spalding Gray said, I tried, to, I tried to go for the detail that lights up in me like a neon light. Isn't that a nice image? Details are revealing and vivid images given in a few words. It's, it's important for us writers to anchor every scene with details, uh, allow our readers to easily form a mental picture. Uh, a well-chosen detail can get a response from the reader that uh, a generalization cannot. As I've mentioned before, details should be specific, definite, and concrete. Those are That's Strunk and White's formulation, and that's one of my favorite phrases in writing, specific, definite, and concrete. A detail is concrete when it appeals to the senses. It should be seen or heard or smelled or tasted or touched. Uh, John Gardner, in his famous book, The Art of Fiction, speaks of details as proofs like those in a geometry theorem. The novelist, he says, "...gives us such details about the streets, stores, weather, politics, and details about the looks, gestures, and experiences of his characters so that we cannot help believing that the story is true." Here are a couple examples of lush details that fill the reader's mind. Uh, here are the first line of, lines of Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray. Listen to his use of scent and sound, and, and making this opening scene seem like an opium dream. The studio was filled with the rich odor of roses, And when the light summer wind stirred amidst the trees of the garden, there came through the open door the heavy scent of the lilac, or the more delicate perfume of the pink-flowering thorn. From the corner of the divan of Persian saddlebags, on which he was lying, smoking, as was his custom, innumerable cigarettes, Lord Henry Watton could just catch the gleam of the honey-sweet and honey-colored blossoms of the laburnum whose tremulous branches seemed hardly able to bear the burden of a beauty so flame-like as theirs, and now and then the fantastic shadows of birds in flight flitted across the long, tussore silk curtains that were stretched in front of the huge window, producing a kind of momentary Japanese effect, and making him think of those pallid, jade-faced painters of Tokyo who through the medium of an art that is necessarily immobile, seek to convey the sense of swiftness and motion. The sullen murmur of the bees shouldering their way through the long, unmown grass, or circling the monotonous, uh, with monotonous insistence round the dusty, gilt horns of the straggling woodbine seemed to make the stillness more oppressive. The dim roar of London was like the Burden done of a distant organ. That's Oscar Wilde. I mispronounced a couple of words in that paragraph, but I'm a writer, uh, not a talker. Here is one of my favorite paragraphs of description I've ever come across. Uh, this is by Thomas Mann in Confessions of Felix Crawl, Confidence Man. Listen to him set out the details. It was a narrow room with a rather high ceiling and crowded from floor to ceiling with goodies. There were rows and rows of hams and sausages of all shapes and colors, white, yellow, red, and black, fat and lean and round and long, rows of canned preserves, cocoa and tea, bright translucent glass bottles of honey, marmalade, and jam. I stood enchanted, straining my ears and breathing in the delightful atmosphere and the mixed fragrance of chocolate and smoked fish and earthy truffles. I spoke into the silence, saying, Good day, in, a quite, in quite a loud voice. I can still remember how my strained, unnatural tones died away in the stillness. No one answered, and my mouth literally began to water like a spring. One quick, noiseless step, and I was beside one of the laden tables. I made one rapturous grab into the nearest glass urn, filled as it chanced with chocolate creams, slipped a fistful into my coat pocket, then reached the door and in the next second was safely round the corner. This wonderful passage uses all five senses. We see the narrow room, the high ceilings, the hams, and the sausages, the preserves, the cocoa, uh, the tea glass, the bottles of honey, the marmalade, the jam. He lets us smell the fragrance of chocolate, the smoked fish, the truffles. He lets us hear good day and the unnatural tones, the stillness. He lets us taste, his mouth waters like a spring, and he lets us touch, he grabs the chocolate creams and, uh, and puts them into his pocket. This writing by Thomas Mann is alive because we live through our senses. Well, that's well and good, but there's a balance. Not enough detail and the story seems dull and uninviting. Too much detail and the story bogs down, so how much is good? And how much is too much? Let me offer a formula. If the detail contributes to the story, add it. If it doesn't contribute, leave it out. Well, that's a squishy formula. I'm not sure it can be sharpened. If our detail is about a character, uh, we can ask, is it important? Here is a description of a character in our story. Dina's walnut-colored hair was short and spiky, none of it reaching her shoulders. Her eyebrows were crafted into arches, and her gray eyes seldom rested on anything for longer than a second. Her chin was small and her nose as thin as her butter knife's blade. The ruby on the third finger of her right hand was at least two carats. Two fingernails on her left hand were gnawed to the quick. Each time she brought her fork to her mouth, her tongue lanced out as if she were afraid food might drop off at the last instant. What does the reader learn from these details? Her hair is short and spiky indicates she's probably edgy. Her eyebrows being crafted means she looks after herself. She looks into a mirror a lot or pays, or pays someone to shape her eyebrows. Uh, This indicates she might be vain, or at least she wants to be presentable. Her chin being small, her nose being narrowed, and her eyes being gray indicates she's pretty. The big ruby on her ring means she may be wealthy, and that she chews on her fingernails might indicate she's insecure. That her tongue shoots out at the last instant to catch food that might fall off her fork indicates she isn't as smooth as she may think she is. Ever met anybody who does that? They don't know they stick their tongue out for an instant under the approaching fork, but they do. It's fascinating. So we have used details uh, to describe Dina, and the details suggest things about her. Seems about right to me, this description. But what if we love details and we continue with something like, her skirt's double fold hem had grey stitching. Well this is a small thing, but it doesn't tell the reader anything about Dina. How about a silver chain was around her an ankle? Well that might be okay, it's it's a nice image, but we already we already have seen that she's fashionable and edgy. Maybe it isn't needed, the uh, ankle bracelet. How about her cell phone on the table had a home screen showing a beagle. Well, that doesn't add much, does it? Uh, cell phones are so common as, as to be boring. Uh, how about her purse hung over the back of the chair? That doesn't add, any, add anything to the description. The key here is that details should be revealing uh, that is, a detail should do double duty. It should describe something, say the ruby ring, and it should reveal something about the character, that Dina is wealthy. Uh, details that are, that are stuck onto the description and don't reveal anything, or details that are duplicative of something already revealed, probably can be left out. So that was a character description. What about a setting description? Uh, Here's one where details that are uh, concrete and specific are used. This is from Gene Shepard's In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, which is a collection of short stories. This is from the short story Harry Gertz and the 47 Crappies, where the narrator's father is taking him fishing. Fishing is different in Indiana. The muddy lakes about May when the sun starts beating down on them, would begin, would begin to simmer and bubble, bubble quietly around the edges. These lakes are not fed by springs or streams. I don't know what feeds them, maybe seepage. Nothing but weeds and truck axles on the bottom. Flat, low, muddy banks surrounded by cottonwood trees, cattails, smelly marshes, and old dumps. Archetypical dumps. Dumps gravitate to Indiana lakes like flies to a hog killing. Way down at the end, where the water is shallow and soupy, are the old cars and the ashes, busted refrigerators, oil drums, old corsets, and God knows what. Uh, God knows what else. Gene Shepard's story is, is set in the late 1940s. I've been to Indiana. I, I didn't see any lakes like this, and Indiana is a remarkably lovely state. But isn't that a wonderful setting description? Every detail adds to the image. We're talking about how how can we know when detail is important to our description, and how can we know when it's unimportant, and so is slowing things down? Let's create a setting. Douglas firs towered overhead, shifting back and forth in the wind. A few red cedar trees were even taller. At the bases of the trees grew thimbleberry uh, thimbleberry bushes and salal with its shiny leaves. Bracken fern grew in the shadiest spots. A barred owl hooted, sounding like the phrase, Who cooks for you? Something shifted on the forest floor, maybe a raccoon or a coyote. Moss and fir needles were soft under her feet. She had studied a photo of poison oak, but she hadn't seen any yet. That's not a bad description of a forest in the Pacific Northwest. How much more detail should we add? Uh, Maybe we could mention uh, a northern flicker, which is a woodpecker, hammering at a tree. Maybe a varied thrush calls with its eerie metallic sound, or maybe not, but I wouldn't go beyond that as a Douglas fir forest in real life has a lot of details. Moths, butterflies, wolves, grouse, hawks, eagles, salmon berries, vine maples, huckleberries, dogwood, madrona, white oak, and lots and lots of other animals and plants, and geology formations and the sky overhead. At some point, we need to stop adding details. I think the paragraph that I read might be enough. All these other things I listed uh, don't make the forest any more lovely or any creepier or any lonelier. So the formula, and I, I know it's a loose formula, is this add details that do double duty. They should show what the object is, and they should reveal something about the character or setting or some other aspect of the story. Uh, If the detail isn't doing double duty, or if the detail isn't adding anything important beyond what we've already written, we should probably leave it out. After visiting a lake in Indiana and a forest in the Pacific Northwest where I live, we've come to the end of this episode. I'm sure glad you were along for it. If you'd like to send me an email, my address is jimthayresseattle at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys.